Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Why are cryptid sightings often accompanied by other phenomena? Are there secret life forms? What does plasma have to do with any of it? Hello and welcome to the 985th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Uh, coming to you from WON AM and FM Radio in uh, Winsocket, Rhode Island, on the Paranormal Radio app, from TalkStream Live, on YouTube and via TuneIn.com. I'm Ben, and that was Paul. And today we bring you a new guest on a cutting-edge topic. And uh, to join us, you can call us from anywhere. That's 401-766-1240, or you can email Paul at BehindTheParanormal.com. Dr. Simeon Hine is an author, educator, lecturer, and sociologist a subject that is surprisingly relevant to the study of high strangeness. He is the director of a research and teaching company, the Mount Baldy Institute, founded in 1997 to allow people to learn remote viewing. Dr. Hine is the author of Opening Minds, A Journey of Extraordinary Encounters, Crop Circles and Resonance, Black Swan Ghosts, A Sociologist Encounters Witnesses to Unexplained Aerial Craft, their occupants, and other elements of the multiverse. Planetary Intelligence, 100 easy, 101 Easy Steps to Energy, Well-Being, and Natural Insight, and Dark Matter Monsters, Cryptids, Ball Lightning, and the Science of Secret Life Forms, which is the subject of our discussion today. So Dr. Simeon Hine, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Hey guys, thanks for having me here today. Oh, it's great to have you with us. And this is this is a very exciting subject, and and it's yep. honestly a very a very fresh take on it, I, I would say. And I'm I'm really excited to get into it. So I guess we'll we'll start off with a little bit of background, um, beginning with the warning that starts off your book, Dark Matter Monsters, <laughs> um, because we think it really sets up everything in, in sort of a way that we can kind of begin the discussion. And I'm, I'm going to begin uh, with a quote. Bigfoot and other cryptids can behave unpredictably and create unknown or damaging biophysical effects on people and pets. These effects can include battery and camera failure, memory lapses, confusion, and time loss. While Bigfoot, in particular, um, have been known to be helpful to people and children, even rescuing them from dangerous situations, the opposite outcome uh, can also lead to long-term mental anxiety, PTSD, severe injury, or death. Uh, please keep your distance from these creatures, if possible, unless you're in the presence of an experienced guide or professional researcher. So, how does this all work? That is a great question. Uh, I will tell you, as a sociologist, where it starts. It starts with a type of denial mechanism, a kind of collective denial mechanism of things that really exist for the sake of social cohesiveness. Uh, whether it's biological, it's built into us just as animals to want to stick together and keep the same story going, which is what we've been taught as kids, or whether it's our conscious minds individually protecting themselves from phenomena that we haven't been told about. The outcome is that we, we don't have collective public discussions about most of these topics, just the slightest amount as we're seeing right now with the UFO, UAP topic in Congress. And sociologists call these hidden events, things that people are experiencing, but they don't want to talk about for some reason. 
Now, is it because of social stigma? Is that is that kind of where this where this leads from? I mean, you know, let's 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 take a take a step back in time, I suppose, where where encountering the monstrous was almost an everyday part of life. You know, even if it's just symbolic monstrousness, right? So let's say like leper colonies or or anything like that. Now, because of our our modern way of life, I say with air quotes, would would this have something to do with creating a stigma around the topic? Right, I think there are there is there's stigma around these topics. It certainly affected commercial and and uh, military pilots, as we've heard from recently since the New York Times article in 2017. Um, but it applies to cryptids too. I you know I start Dark Matter Monsters out by saying that my mom used to read me this book by Maurice Sendak called Where the Wild Things Are. Mm, I read you that I book would too. Not, you too. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure. Uh, a lot of us, I would never have imagined in a million years that it would turn out to be true in <laughs> some respects. Yeah. I, I'm from the East Coast uh, like you guys are from. I mean, I went to East Coast high schools, East Coast colleges, Connecticut, Massachusetts. I know the mindset of academia having gone all the way through to Ph.D., and I think the unfortunate thing is, as uh, as you become more specialized in one area within academia, you're less likely to take risks to look at topics that have a stigma associated with them, just like these topics of UFOs or cryptids or anything associated with the paranormal. But there's just so much scientific evidence that these phenomena are real, and we have just simply avoided it. And I, I think... You know what you're saying, Paul, it has something to do with the modern mindset, which is I won't believe anything that I can't see that's not right in front of me. There has to be this extreme level of proof. We won't look at it unless it's really within the mainstream of the normal distribution, which is how I was taught within social science, how we compare phenomena and analyze them statistically. We compare things to a normal distribution. But having taken many math math classes and higher level statistics classes there are other distributions too beyond the normal distribution why we only use the normal distribution and try to force reality into being normal when you have these tail end events and uh, phenomena and life forms that are not as common as the other life forms that we see but they're there why we insist on doing this, I don't know, because it, you wouldn't do that with aircraft or buildings. You wouldn't accept that level of variation and uncertainty. But we seem to do it with our sense of reality. And so here we are in this time period where more and more people are having contact with these types of phenomena, and they're able to communicate now more freely because of the Internet, share stories. And then they hear that other people have had these experiences whether it be with Bigfoot or, or Dogman or, or some of these other cryptids. And keep in mind, this, from my research, this seems to be spread throughout North America. This is not just a phenomena like I was led to believe a couple decades ago that's confined to the Northwest in, in the Cascade Mountains or something like that. These, these types of uh, creatures, life forms, whatever they turn out to be, are you know permeate North America and probably the entire world. Well, I remember that... Um we had a conversation in preparation for this show a uh, month or two ago, and uh, I was telling you about uh, my experience in Pennsylvania and a, uh, what we refer to as a flap area case that we were investigating. And uh, I encountered Bigfoot plain as day, although it was at night, brilliant moonlit night, 
September 16th, 2016. And uh, I wasn't expecting that. I was looking for strange lights in the sky, which always seem to accompany these creatures in this area, and which is uh, one of the themes of, of your work, too. And uh, to me, it was a sacred experience, because I prepare spiritually before going into these these areas. Uh, and yet, a little girl coming home from school in broad daylight um, in, 20, in 2015 uh, had seen this same, apparently same or similar creature and was utterly terrified. Now, we were talking, uh, too, about uh, what we bring to the phenomenon. Uh, could you comment uh, on why these experiences are sort of objective and subjective at the same time? Yeah, that is the really interesting part about it is, <clears throat> so our modern scientific method, <clears throat> excuse me, our modern scientific method wants this repeatability consistency, what we think of as objective reality, right? We all have an idea of what it is. It's something that should be repeatable under any circumstances that everyone would perceive the same sort of uh, results to a particular experiment, and we could agree about what we're experiencing and then decide what it is, and we consider that to be objective. Uh, but these phenomena don't seem to be completely in that realm. You'll have physical evidence that they were there. Like with Sasquatch, for example, people say there's no physical evidence, but we have hair samples, there's footprints, and then there's the dents in cars when they throw rocks and boulders at cars, uh, who I know some witnesses have had happen to them. Uh, they didn't think the insurance company would believe them, so they didn't make a claim. But you saw one yourself, so now you know it's real. I've had friends who've seen them who were skeptics, even as recently as a year ago, who knew I was writing Dark Matter Monsters, but were just humoring me along because they didn't really believe in it until they went out to a rather remote area where they had, you know, the family cabin and they encountered one. Uh, so... Uh, it does seem particular to certain circumstances, and the thing I'm always puzzled about is when you have a group sighting of Sasquatch, people won't agree about what it looked like. Some people will say it looked like more like an ape. Other people will say it looked more like a cat-ape uh, hybrid, and other people in the same group, right in the same area, will say insist it looked like a caveman or a Neanderthal. There's... a uh, it has something to do with us also, which leads me to think that we're dealing with phenomena that <clears throat> emerge from parallel realities have something to do with the multiverse. Because <clears throat> that would add a degree of subjectivity to it, and while it's still objective. It's sort of a blend of both objective and subjective. That, that's our point of view as well. Uh, there is a, uh, another excellent quote in your book, one among many. Uh, you refer to non-ordinary states of matter that science has yet to fully recognize and that these life forms may be based on, on that concept. Can you say something about that, please? Yeah, we're all familiar with the ordinary uh, three states of matter that we were taught about in high school, you know, chemistry classes, you know, solids, liquids, gases. And we're all familiar with the fourth state of matter, which are plasmas which um, science tells us is the most abundant form of matter in the universe. We're talking about uh, plasmas make up neon bulbs, neon signs, lightning, aurora borealis, 
and then nebulous and excited <clears throat> gases out in the universe, which we can see with telescopes in the naked eye. But there's a fifth state of matter beyond plasmas, and that is self-organized plasmas, which we commonly refer to as ball lightning orbs and so forth. Okay. Yeah, and oh, so this ahead. is another, it's called coherent matter. It was it was verified here in Boulder in 1995 as so-called Bose-Einstein condensate, which is a very low temperature uh, material where the waveforms of the electrons begin to overlap because there's so little energy in the system. All the electrons become one waveform, essentially one big electron. And this is what you see around a lot of so-called paranormal phenomena, though at room temperature, at our regular temperature. So this suggests to us that we're dealing with coherent matter phenomena, and this is why you get orbs and ball lightning and luminous phenomena around so many of these types of topics. You know, I can send you some... I'm sorry, Ben. What, uh, no, no, please. I'll just uh, mention the, uh, the existence of plasma-based life forms. It's something that Carl Sagan himself uh, speculated about. And uh, we have, uh, I can send you some photographs of what appear to be, what, you know, what in, in our lexicon are parasites, what folklore would refer to as demons, uh, during cases that I've seen with the naked eye and taken photographs of. Yes. And it lo- they look like plasma to me. Yes, you often get this, and this was one of my first experiences with these subjects, learning remote viewing uh, as a teacher in Atlanta uh, when uh, I was working at the Farsight Institute there in 1996. And one of the fellows there who was just learning this came out of the session very disturbed, and he said an orb had come into the room while he was doing his session and just sort of hovered in the area. And being the good remote viewer he was trained to be, he actually attempted to touch it, right? Hmm. And he got. He said it, it was like a huge electrical shock. He said it felt just incredibly painful for a few seconds. And yet the other person in the room didn't see it. They saw him reaching up, but they didn't see the orb. Again... It's just like you were saying a few seconds ago, is that some people can perceive this. Is it just based on the way the angles of light or so forth and the other person at another point of view didn't see it? They witnessed him yelling out in pain, reaching out for something, but they didn't see the orb. But he saw it quite clearly. But this is the thing that really surprised me is how common these types of plasmas and organized plasmas are around just about any of these phenomena that you're interested in that I'm interested in, whether it's crop circles, certainly around UFOs, we've had enough reports of that, just the NICAP report alone from the 60s, strange effects around (laughs) UFOs talked about that. And I was so surprised, and and ghosts and haunted sites, but the big surprise to me, I, I just couldn't believe once I started to talk to local witnesses in the Front Range area here in Boulder, Colorado, People who had come to my remote viewing classes over many years had started to tell me about this 20 years ago. It just didn't sink in for a while. I guess I'm a little thick. But they were telling me about their sightings. But when I started talking to more witnesses to find out they had camera failure, battery failure, uh, orbs around Bigfoot, that totally shattered my idea that this was some sort of escaped gorilla or relic primate or any sort of ordinary mammal that you'd be familiar with. 
So there's a really interesting concept um, that that I I was introduced to through the field of phenomenology, whether it's a real field or not, right? You, know, you could argue it's still a pseudoscience, but I, I think it's fascinating because there's a concept that I heard in a lecture a while ago that essentially was um, we sort of view things entirely based on our experience of reality. And so we filter everything we experience through the things we know, right? And we do we do our best to kind of build a, a narrative with with the little bits and pieces that we have. You know, it's 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 partially why my less nuanced approach to the paranormal than my father here. No, no, no judgments. No. I've 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 taken a step back from from making it very like granular and saying, well, it seems as if. Based on our experiences, right? Because we know there's an objective reality, but we all experience it subjectively, and it's it's based on this subjective experience that we that we view these things. And we, if we've never experienced anything like this before, right? It's like um, a good a good friend of ours, uh, Andy Kitt, uh, was getting a a I don't know if he ever finished it. I haven't seen him in a long time. But last I spoke to him, he was getting his PhD in uh, cognitive sciences, specifically in. Um, his his thesis was based on how people uh, view UFO experiences, right? So in group sightings, some people will see a UFO and some people just don't see it at all. His theory was that because people who saw actually saw the the craft, they they'd seen it before, and so they they knew how to interpret it. They saw it. They 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 it, it distilled and boom, they they saw it and they knew it. But other people who were there, they saw nothing. Maybe because they just their minds just couldn't handle it and boom, gone. Just Nothing there, but uh, I think it's interesting to and, and worth noting that everything that we experience is is kind of distilled through us, un- unfortunately. <laughs> it's it's kind of hard to, to codify all of it. But what what are you, what are your thoughts on on the no that's, that is absolutely correct, and it's actually much more severe than you would imagine. <laughs> uh, your your brain is a really good filtering mechanism, and there was a book I came across. Really, before I was familiar with these topics, more when I was in sociology, that even Ingo Swan, the remote viewing, you know, person that created it at SRI uh, for the government, for the intelligence agency, the remote viewing protocol that we call CRV. Mm. The book was called The User Illusion by Tor Noratranders, a Danish science writer. And in this book, he argued that we filter out, based on all these experiments that you know brain physiologists have done we filter out more than 99.99999% of the information that comes into our physical senses every second out of 40 million bits that's the best estimate we can get of how much you receive per second wow. you're only aware of about 16 16 out of 40 billion can you believe it 40 yeah. million mm-hmm. excuse me 40 million it's a tiny fraction and that is the 16 bits is like what a CD used to be per second. So uh, we filter everything out that doesn't fit our sense of reality. And I think you're correct is that people that have experienced this before would gradually get used to it so that the next time something like that shows up, it would register in their conscious mind. We've all heard those stories how the early explorers, when they were discovering North America or other parts of the world that the indigenous peoples wouldn't see their ships because they didn't know what a big wooden ship was. They would just see something out there that looked like a mountain. And it would be the shaman within that culture that would teach people how to see what was really there. 
Mm. We're all like that. It's just that we're like that with these phenomenon. And um, we don't actually see reality. We see, the, as you said, we see a narrative that we've been taught since we were just a few days old of what's real and uh, what's not real. So, uh, and just one concrete of, uh, example of this is there's a recent movie about Bigfoot, a documentary which <laughs> I saw. It's about a year, came out about a year ago. It's called The Flash of Beauty, Bigfoot Revealed. And I thought it was just beautifully done, you know, one of the best documentaries I had seen, and I really appreciated in the last half hour they had these psychiatrists on hmm. who said not only do people have PTSD from Bigfoot encounters, and I've encountered this with people I know too, they actually literally don't want to go on nature walks uh, for quite a while. They may not want to go out in the dark anymore. It can be that shocking, as you know. Because you just this was something you were told wasn't real, and there's something you know twice the size of a human, a thousand to two thousand pounds, looking at you with glowing eyes, and uh, you're just not quite sure. Your brain goes into this defensive mode, and it creates a type of PTSD. But it's actually worse than that. You actually may not even remember the encounter. This is what these uh, psychologists and psychiatrists said. It's just just like. You're saying, Brian, if it doesn't fit the narrative, the far, here's what it is, and this is the way a sociologist would look at it. The farther it is outside the social consensus narrative that we've been brought up around, and, and we all went to the same sort of schools, so we, uh, public schools and private schools, so we know what that narrative is. The farther it's outside that narrative, the less likely you are to re even remember it. So this is why we don't have a, a good sense of what this reality is, is there's a stigma about it, which we mentioned earlier on the show. People are afraid of, of ridicule, harassment, losing their jobs, and so forth. Kind of a decline in social status from talking about what they've experienced with these types of life forms and phenomena. And then there's within your own brain, there are defensive mechanisms that may lead you to completely forget about it. And what you'll be left with instead is, a missing, is missing time mm. and no conscious memory of what happened. That's a very good explanation of missing time. I, I do. We're, we're quickly approaching our break. Um, I did. I did want to hop into that that whole discussion about you know mental mental health, PTSD, anxiety, all of that around this because I feel like nobody really talks a lot about that, and it's it's important because we are the ones experiencing the event. But I feel like the phenomena sometimes gets more of a spotlight than the person actually experiencing it because it's kind of like, oh, they saw Bigfoot, and then who cares about the guy that saw it? It's like, <laughs> but it, it matters because they're the ones experiencing it and relaying these these intimate details of this experience to us. But before we we go down that road, I believe we have a listener question we probably want to hop into prior. Uh, sure. This is uh, from Peter. Peter Shelley, uh, who co-hosted last week mm. from Bogota, Colombia, always sends in thoughtful questions. Yes, first of all, quick thank you to Peter for, for covering for me last week yeah. while I was uh, under the weather. Uh, Peter writes to us, uh, have you remote viewed any alleged UFO events? And if so, what details have you learned uh, that are not in the public domain? So this is a good question, and we've remote viewed many UFO events over the years. It's something you give to people that have gone beyond the basic class. We like to start with so-called verifiable targets, and I think anyone who teaches the so-called CRV system that I learned, the coordinate remote viewing that was created by Ingo Swan and others at SRI, as I mentioned, uh, you start with verifiable targets, you know, like the Eiffel Tower or Mount Kilimanjaro or you know, Washington Monument or, or well-known public figures. That way you can verify uh, 
what the viewer is getting, right? Um, and, and they know they're either on target or they were off target. And you can proceed to targets like UFOs, which we've done many times. We've viewed the Phoenix Lights, Roswell, other incidents like that. And people have reported in some of these viewings where I, it was a blind target. They were not told what they were looking at. It's hidden in a folder somewhere on a desk. They can't. See, they don't know consciously what they're viewing until the session's over. And sometimes they've reported during the session, I feel like I'm on a craft and I'm being told to leave, that I'm not supposed to be here. It's, it's kind of interesting. But at the end of the day, we can't verify UFO targets because we can't go on them. You and I can't go on, which we'd like to do, right? Objectively look around and say, did the viewer get what was there? Uh, we also reach the limit of vocabulary and our ability to conceptualize new experiences. So a viewer could experience something on a craft like a type of technology, but have no idea what they're looking at. Just like you can imagine if you gave a typewriter to cavemen. So, uh, so there's also that sort of limitation too. It's, it's your ability to verbalize what you're seeing, write it down before you forget all of it, which is what tends to happen in an RV session or, or often. So, um, so we do view them, but we have to keep in mind that it's not always verifiable, but sometimes it is. And I did post a video on my YouTube channel of, uh, I, someone gave me just the hangars at Area 51 with those planes in front that they like to reverse engineer and fly and so forth. Some MiGs were sitting there. And all I did, it was like a two-sentence conversation. I gave her the coordinates, hung up the phone, and she completely reproduced the photo of the hangars there with the MiGs in front. And then on her own, she started walking around in the hangars, and I hadn't confirmed to her what she – I mean, she's on her own 500 miles away from me. I'm not there confirming anything that she's getting. She just feels like these are the hangers at Area 51. She walks in and she sees what she thinks are disks hovering off the ground. We don't know whose they are. They're maybe reverse engineered craft or, you know, some black budget program. But so, yes, we do. We do view these from time to time. Just keep in mind, we can't always verify at the end of the session whether the viewer was on target or, or not. Mm. Yeah, pretty impressive. Well, uh, we'll take our mid-show break. It is Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WON AM and FM Radio here in Rhode Island. And it's a dreary day, but we have a great guest. So stick with us. We'll be right back with Dr. Simeon Hine. You can depend on us for public service. Owen Radio. Hi, I'm Greg Bell, the host of When Radio Was. I'm Mortimer. Bill. Is that you under that blindfold? Bill. With this thing on, I can't see who I am. No, I imagine not. Can't you see anything at all under that blindfold? On a clear day, I can see the blindfold. You can. When Radio Was. Shows from the past for today's imaginations. When Radio Was airs Monday through Friday right here on ON 1240 Radio at 11 a.m. and 11 p.m. And welcome back to Behind the Paranormal on WON AM and FM Radio. And we'll continue our conversation on dark matter monsters with Dr. Simeon Hyde. Now, uh, Doctor, uh, I wanted to get back to the notion of orbs, mm-hmm. as they are called. They appear in photographs. Uh, a number of people, including myself, have seen them with a the naked eye. They appear to act somewhat like ball lightning. They uh, will change colors. They will act in an intelligent manner, in my opinion. Uh, so w- how would this connect with plasma and condensed matter? 
Uh, well, if they're living things. Yeah, that is a really good question. Ball lightning's been studied for hundreds of years. You can go back to studies that were uh, done in uh, in Europe. Uh, Francois Arago from France, uh, who was a politician physicist, uh, did his own study of ball lightning a couple hundred years ago. Walter Brand in Germany in 1923. I mean, these have been going on all the way through the Soviets. Soviet Union did a lot of research on ball lightning. Uh, all the way up to Russian scientists at the present. And this is what puzzles a lot of ball lightning researchers is the ball lightning seems to act like it's almost alive. It, it seems like it's alive, whether it is or not in the sense that we think of life as being you know, conscious and intentional and so forth is another question, but it does seem to follow static gradients very carefully. This is why it goes down the aisles of airplanes and so forth. It's very sensitive to static charges, and it seems to be attracted to people and animals, too, which gives it the feeling like it's following you or being attracted to the animals. It also has a nasty tendency to explode towards the end of its life cycle of a few seconds or a few minutes, which can cause a lot of injury and damage. But ball lightning does a lot of really strange things, too. I mean, even in those reports from 100 years ago, they talk about ball lightning transporting animals and people. Is that a sort of condensed matter phenomena where they turn objects into Bose-Einstein condensates of coherent matter that then come apart again, like almost like a type of teleportation? Uh, Whatever the answer to those questions turns out to be, and I know places like Skinwalker Ranch, you know, the orbs, but this has happened at many other sort of paranormal hotspots, Marley Woods in Missouri. Remember Ted Phillips studying oh, yeah. that area? Yep. It's exactly the same as Skinwalker, if not even more so. Mm -hmm. uh, the orbs coming over, picnic tables lifting off the ground, like all trying to pull out their chains as the orbs come, like an anti-gravity effect. I mean, these are all properties of... Uh, orbs and condensed matter and ball lightning because it's a different state of matter and it's so highly it's a, it's a compressed state of matter it's uh the compression is so strong that the particles lose their individual identity and some researchers like Takayaki Matsumoto in Japan who studied this since the late 80s a really high level physicist in Japan uh he studied this and came to the conclusion it was a type of gravitational collapse he called it electronuclear gravitational collapse is if the, the gra whole gravitational field had collapsed, almost as if you were looking at a, uh, a black hole that mm. was just emitting so much light because it's ionizing the air around it. So a type of compressed matter that has a different type of physics. Uh, the American uh, engineer physicist, uh, Ken Shoulders, who also worked at SRI, by the way, before the remote viewing program developing microelectronics, he discovered this, too, and concluded that cold fusion, low-energy nuclear reaction, as it's re you know, referred to now, remember Fleischmann and Pons at the University of Utah in 89, mm. he, he said that cold fusion is a type of micro-ball lightning. And so when I started reading this, it just seemed to me there were so many commonalities between all these phenomena, especially the what you're saying, the phenomenology, the, what people say they experience around these, which are time slips and... Uh, uh, gravitational changes, luminosities, watches stopping. The fact that that happens from cryptids through crop circles to haunted sites and even cold fusion experiments, you'll get some of those same phenomena happening. 
I think we can make a very, you know, reason, a reasonable argument that we're looking at the same phenomena that's expressing itself in different ways. And the commonality between all of those phenomena are orbs and ball lightning. Just to take that a little deeper, there are many uh, testimonies from experiencers who have been, say they have been healed by an orb-like phenomenon, uh, particularly those who are involved in UFO experiences. Uh, on the other hand, there are uh, some others, perhaps not as many, who believe they have been sickened by orbs. I'm thinking of the blue orb in one of the Texas cases. Right yeah. through, the, he was driving a car right through his body, ended up with some weird kind of cancer. Yes. And, uh, I mean, what say you about the intentions of these things, if we can attribute intentions to them? I mean, what, no, what this is just a huge question, isn't it? Uh, because people have reported these healings around cryptids, too, occasionally, around Bigfoot. Yep. That they felt like, uh, I, I've talked to people who've been right there where this happened, where people that were really ill with something in their bodies that was going to require surgery pretty soon, and they knew it, which is why they went on a trip, was just to take a vacation before they had their surgery, were healed overnight after they heard tapping sounds, wood knocking sounds, and so forth as if the frequency was designed to help them. And I remember going to lectures at UFO conferences where UFO healings were documented. Uh, there were In one lecture, there were over 100 cases discussed of UFO healings uh, at reference. So it, what we need to know is more about what sort of energy are we dealing with here, what, what type of uh, physics is involved. Uh, it, it, this again, this goes back hundreds of years. It goes through Nikola Tesla, but before it precedes Tesla, Tesla was taking it in a direction. It's, we're talking about organized resonance. This is the essence of coherent matter as a type of resonance where you don't need to uh, pull energy out of the system or put energy in. You just need to coordinate the resonance of the particles that are there. And when they achieve this fifth state, they're very powerful. It, it, it generates a huge amount of electromagnetism. Uh, you know that ball lightning, if it comes within a few inches of something, can completely magnetize non-magnetic materials like wood? Yep. Yes, I mean, you've heard about this. We normally don't think of wood being a magnetic material. Around UFOs or orbs or ball lightning, trees can become temporarily magnetic. This is goes back to Paul Dirac's magnetic monopoles from a hundred years ago when he proposed this, right? He also proposed antimatter, which was also discovered a few years after he proposed it. So uh, so it's definitely something that we need to be cautious about. And, and uh, when you read studies of ball lightning, you get these warnings from the scientists that are putting these studies together that there are injuries and deaths associated with ball lightning. I spoke to one witness myself from Philadelphia when I was writing Dark Matter Monsters who uh, – I corresponded with, and he had been just working on a, a gutter or something uh, around a house, and a ball lightning came out of the sky and, and blew up, and he said he was blown backwards. The strength was so strong. But as you're pointing out, Paul, uh, you can it can create cancer, too. It can create uh, x-rays, ultraviolet radiation, hard x-rays, uh, and... Um, Cold fusion Leonard researchers, unfortunately, have a larger proportion of cancer and have shorter lifespans than the general population because they're, you know, they're just so enthusiastic about developing this science behind this phenomena that they can expose themselves to 
types of radiation that are not healthy for us. So we need to be very cautious about this. You get healings from it. It's sort of like something sort of random process. Now, I, to, to answer your question directly, is it intentional? Is it alive? We can't rule out the idea that some life forms have learned how to manipulate orbs and ball lightning. Sometimes they really do seem intentional. Uh, there's a, there's a, even ball lightning researchers, I'm thinking of Teodorani Massimo, uh, Massimo Teodorani, uh, he called it overlapping phenomenology. Because we can't separate from UFOs to ball lightning to cryptids. We can't neatly separate them into separate categories. Mm. And these ball lightning researchers say it looks awfully alive to them, especially when they branch off of UFOs, right? Mm -hmm. And those look like orbs, ball lightning. But are they, or are they solid objects that appear like orbs and ball lightning? Uh, John Ramirez from the CIA, you've probably heard him on different podcasts over the past year or two. Mm. He came forward, he said he has permission to talk about this. There were orb projects within the CIA, there were UFO projects within the CIA that he knew about, classified programs that he didn't go to, but he sent some of his uh, people that worked in his department to those programs, and they had to get briefed and get security clearances to participate in these programs. And Ramirez came to the conclusion, he said the CIA concluded that orbs and UFOs are two sides of the same phenomena. Isn't that weird? They could see this from the keyhole satellites that the structured objects coming into our atmosphere, and I'd like to see this released in a FOIA yeah. uh, re report, uh, they would transform into plasmas. And it goes one step beyond that. They have a dark plasma mode, too, where they're completely invisible to the human eye. So it's quite complex, quite complex. Indeed. So I guess before we, we let the hour burn away here, we're, yes. we're coming yes. down to the end. Tell us a little bit about uh, your books, where people can find out more about you, what you're working on, and then, uh, then we'll, we'll, we'll continue. Well, thanks. As you mentioned, you know, my most recent book is Dark Matter Monsters because I realized after looking into all these topics, and it originally started for me with Opening Minds, which was my book about remote viewing and then going over to the crop circles in the U.K., which is a whole other interesting topic, where we had these same phenomena happening. Cameras going out, batteries, orbs. I've seen two orbs, uh, with once with other people, around the crop circle areas. One was just for a few seconds, and one was for about a minute. Uh, time loss, uh, space-time slips. Uh, the more I looked into these topics, the more I saw that there were, there were, they were happening in too many types of places, in different locations for it to be separate phenomena. Now, if people want to really think that ghosts have nothing to do with Bigfoot or UFOs, and I might have been one of those people 20 years ago thinking, going to a UFO conference, you know, what does that have to do with Bigfoot? Because they'd have an occasional Bigfoot lecture. But looking at the evidence, as you said, Paul, you had a sighting yourself going out looking for UFOs. Uh, Stan Gordon wrote about this book. He wrote about it in Silent Invasion, right? Yeah. In the were you in that area of Pennsylvania, by the way? Uh, a little bit south of where uh, Stan is. Yeah, so he, it's all this overlapping phenomena where you get UFOs and Bigfoot, and then sometimes in the same area you'll have Bigfoot coming out of UFOs. What is going on there? Yeah, really? I, to, me, to me, this all suggests uh, that we're dealing with parallel realities and multiverses, and there are yep. there's serious physics behind this that... Since the 1950s, Hugh Everett proposed this idea, the many worlds idea. So, uh, Everett. 
Yeah, so I mean, Whoever. this is why I keep writing. And my books, you can get them on my blog, New Crystal Mind. I'm happy to send people signed copies. Or, of course, they're available on Amazon. But I feel compelled to keep studying and writing about these topics because of the witnesses I talk to and realizing that as a society, we really haven't had enough discussion about what's going on here. I mean, even uh, people like Hal Putoff, who admitted to us he had been in, in some of these classified UFO programs in 2018 when he gave us a lecture in Vegas. Uh, at the SSC Urban Conference, he said there's a lot of science to be learned here, and we're really losing out by not investigating these phenomena more. One of our points is uh, was was trying to work out what is such a secret as far as uh, UFOs uh, being the most obvious, and then, but when you look at it, there really is a cloak of a government secrecy around all paranormal phenomena. And uh, Ben and I have been on on uh, panels at many conferences. Everybody speaks learnedly about uh, disclosure and it will come this year or next year. And and uh, we say, well, first of all, who believes what the government says anymore? And Ben came up with a brilliant question, which we've been using, what's in it for the government to disclose anything to the likes of us? You know, and uh, I pose that to a, distinguished scholar on this subject, and he said, I'll have to think about that. Well, yeah, I mean, look at the IRS. Like, the IRS is not a benevolent organization. It is, <laughs> if, if the government does anything, it's so they can get something out of it. Yeah, pretty much so, you know, so what's in it for the government? So our working theory for, for many years has been that they know about this multiverse, that they know about the Everett universes, they know about the different laws of physics, perhaps from one to the other, they know about the phenomenon impinging upon our conscious reality. We think that is what the secret is. If people think the aliens or whatever are somewhere out there, you know, some other planet, even if they're visiting, that's fine. I mean, we all grew up with Mr. Spock. But if it's right next to us all the time, our most beautiful dreams and our worst nightmares, that would send society into a spiral. I said, so what say you? You guys are right on here. I mean, I went to the citizen hearing in 2013 at the National Press Club. Remember that was oh, yeah. mm-hmm. hosted by the Paradigm Research Institute? Yep. Stephen Bassett's group. Yeah. Steve Bassett, yep. yeah. Yeah, no, this was a very respectable effort with retired Congress people and a senator. They couldn't get any sitting Congress people or senators to attend, right? The stigma. Yeah. Even Harry Reid, who started OSAP. Exactly. He said his staffer said, Harry, you got to watch out for this topic. It could ruin your career. And he said, I don't care. You know, my family saw one once. We're going to, I'm interested in this thing. You know, some, you have to have guts to want to break the mold and go outside the norm a little bit. And I think we have a lot of conformity within government bureaucracies that discourages bureaucrats from taking any risks. What I wanted to say about the citizen hearing is you had five days of excellent witnesses. You had witnesses and and researchers from China, military officials from Latin America who had seen these and captured excellent photos with their, you know, military quality cameras and their gun footage and so forth. C-SPAN didn't even turn the cameras on for a minute. Those are automated. They can remotely turn on the cameras at the National Press Club. How many events have you seen at the National Press Club? It happens all the time yeah. on C-SPAN. Every day almost. Every day, but did they do it for five days? There were FAA officials there, the missile security launch officers, the people that we trust 
in the missile silos to launch on command, put their keys in, and, launch, and they four of them were there talking about these UFO incidents. If, if those people are not enough to turn the cameras on for C-SPAN, not even the government, just C-SPAN, I mean, what, what does it take? Well, what we see is going on right now is these hearings, and we're told that we're told that the Cong- our Congress people and senators coming out of these hearings are looking pretty somber, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we haven't. We were told there's a, some 23 minute video of UFOs, the best UFO footage, with the really good cameras and satellites and so forth, at satellite sensors. Uh, we haven't seen it as the public. I mean, we're told there's video footage of a triangular UFO coming out of the ocean over the Navy, a Navy ship. So I just think that the longer we hold back talking about this, the harder it gets, right? It doesn't get it easier. So these people are feeling pretty somber, and they can't even talk to you or I about it because they probably have some sort of security, you know, uh, condition on seeing this material, right? They probably have security clearances on these committees they're on. But... Uh, the government eventually has to adjust to this. I, I worked in 1989 at a research institute south of Vienna that was a joint east-west research institute set up by Brezhnev and Nixon. And I worked with Soviet scientists and so forth, and scientists from East Germany. I was studying fractal geometry at the time. Chaos wow. theory. Yeah. yeah, that's where this started for me, is chaos, you know, fractals. Objects. Chaos theory, yeah. Exactly. These people understood it correctly, but by uh, the end of 89, East Germany had ceased to exist. Nobody saw that coming. Our own intelligence agencies didn't see it coming. I don't think the East Germans saw it coming. And then within a few years, the Soviet Union had dissolved, all from one country, Hungary, just opening up their border with Austria and just people coming through, and they weren't going to enforce the border anymore, and that was sort of the end of East Europe. So, the, the you know, the East, East Bloc. So these... I guess I feel that these things can change a lot faster than anyone could imagine. And the, and, and the more rigid you become, the more the whole system's going to shatter. What it took with meteorites 200 years ago, when those were not considered to be real either, they were considered to be like peasant mythology in, in uh, Europe, meteorites. Mm. Yep. And Kaladni and BO2 scientists, one from France, one from Germany, I mean, they were really convinced these were extraterrestrial. It took one event to totally change the minds of scientists around the world. It was one night around Eagle, France, there were thousands of fragments of a meteorite came down, and it made an elliptical pattern on the ground. Uh, You can find this book called The Meteor Report uh, on Mm -hmm. Amazon. And they say this elliptical pattern, it's evidence, it was data, and it convinced everyone that these had fallen from the sky, uh, that were not stones thrown up by lightning or something like this, or volcano stones. It had to be an extraterrestrial event. But but even meteorites were considered to be some sort of folklore, and just one event could change that. So I imagine this will happen with UFOs and and eventually with cryptids, too. There are too many witnesses to both of these uh, phenomena for us to keep ignoring them, you know. And eventually, listen, I've talked to people within this area who say they know people within the government, within our intelligence agencies who have been abducted by UFOs. And they, uh, even John Alexander, Colonel John Alexander mentioned this oh, at yeah. one conference. He said someone from the Department of Homeland Security came up to him and said they were waking up outside their house a couple nights in a row and the doors were locked. So, and they said, John, what's going on here? And John said, we don't know. Uh, even Terry Lovelace told me 
not too long ago, and he wanted me to make this public, he got a call from the Department of Homeland Security, and they said they're taking UFO abduction seriously. They're actually doing an investigation into what it could be. And they're not ruling anything out. So it seems to me below the surface there's a lot going on with these topics. Oh, yeah. And at some point the government has no choice, but especially when they're being abducted too. <laughs> right. And it's not, they, what about John Lekatsky's book, Skinwalkers at the Pentagon, right? Yep. Uh, I just he, read that. Yeah, I mean, he, he goes out there, he says, what is this a national security implication, Skinwalker Ranch? He goes back to Washington, D.C. The people who are out there report seeing these cryptids back in their backyards, you know, in wooded areas in Maryland in the suburbs where they live, which they found extremely disturbing. But he said he couldn't get any of the other intelligence agencies to be interested in this phenomenon. They literally said to him, what do you think they said? Uh, this is going to stigmatize us to be associated with these topics. So, but again, just using that East German example, it, things can change a lot faster than you would expect. Hmm, that's that is really interesting, and I I'm I'm reminded <clears throat> of a story about Nixon when uh, I think it was it was during during some sort of protests or whatever. He you know he went out late at night and he was just kind of sitting out there and he was talking to some of the protesters and like, well, why don't you just stop Vietnam? And he was like, how am I supposed to stop it? <laughs> and and, he, and and it it reminds me of this idea um posited by this writer I really like his name is Paul Kingsnorth where he has this idea of the machine right that there's this sort of metaphysical sort of like construct maybe not even that we've sort of all built around ourselves as as, as time has gone on and there's sort of this sense I believe I it, he posits in an article he wrote in his Substack a little while ago um, that there's this all this sense that we all kind of have that something's shifting and changing, and it, it feels almost like the the summer before World War One broke out, where there's all this tension, and we we feel like perhaps this this machine, if you will, that we're all sort of unintentionally connected to, is is kind of moving, and the people who were in charge of it are no longer in charge of it anymore. That it's kind of starting to run out of control. Now, yeah. I, I, I would make the argument that as time has gone on, especially over the last few decades, the, the political landscape of not, not even just the West, right, the, the whole modern world has, has changed so dramatically that world governments, like excluding China, all just don't even matter anymore. Really, it's, it's kind of about who has the most money and, and who's, who's throwing it around the most. That really, it's more of, of a technological oligarchy than anything else at this point. And what would guys like Jeff Bezos or you know um, uh, people like that, you know, who? Why would they care, you know? Or or how would they gain from it? More than likely, right? The, the whole idea of of making money is is to find disruptors in the system and say, okay, cool, this is how we make the most money. Because statistically, right, the people who make the most money are the people who disrupt the system. And they, they come up with something new, grand, great, and then, boom, with that disruptor, they make tons of money. So it, at the end of the day, it, it feels as if the the sort of rigid structures that we kind of view as the government, right, it's it almost as if it, it doesn't really matter anymore. Would, would you agree? Well, I think it matters less and less. It's true. I mean, we're all connected by many types of modern technologies now that allow us to share stories and narratives and ideas. Right? We're doing it right now. And uh, that just makes centralized governments less and less relevant. And when this 
topic really breaks, it's going to break in a big way. I think we all know that, right? It mm. feels like it's building up to it right now. I mean, you can have these, uh, you know, you can delay it, but we have it written into the NDAA, you know, congressional law now that the Pentagon has to report, I think, twice a year on UFOs every 180 days. Hmm. And they are saying in these reports, the last one came out, it was pretty late, but it did come out, when was it, January, that they can't explain, you know, huge um, percentages of what these objects are, just like it's always been ever since Blue Book, at least 20%, if not more. The first report said they couldn't explain almost all of them. The, la the most recent one, it was still about 20%. And that 20% is what we need to be looking at. And I think what we're going to find, guys, is that many people have had these experiences, like you write about in your books, mm. like I write about people we talk to, people we know, our own experiences. I would bet that many Americans have had these experiences, but they didn't want to talk about it for fear of being ridiculed by their neighbors or their family. I've talked to so many witnesses who said their dads saw something while in the Air Force, and they mentioned it when they were drinking one night but never wanted to talk about it again. You know, things that they could not identify, people that worked in the air control towers and stuff, who knew every single plane in the Air Force and just saw things that said they had no identification, that no. just didn't add up. I'm sure there are a lot of stories like that. When we put all these stories together, we're going to have a different reality. And I, I think it's time for it because, you know, you're talking about making money. There's a lot of science here. We could be living in healthier more efficient ways without so much waste, right? Mm. On, without, the, you know, the dependency on fuels the way we have right now. And uh, th there's so much potential. I mean, what we're I mean, Tesla was the perfect example. I mean, there's, you know, companies named after Nikola Tesla now. Good Tesla point. created the original electric car. How, how much innovation could we get out of coherent matter phenomena? Uh, it's the coherent matter phenomena, I should mention really quickly before we enter, it's not just something that generates a lot of energy and zaps your electronics. It creates nucleosynthesis. It literally transmutes elements into other elements. It could completely remediate radioactive wastes. People have been proposing this for about two decades. I'll completely remedi remediate radioactive wastes naturally, the way the Earth would do it, just by using compression. And tra it transforms elements up and down the periodic table. That's an amazing thing about it. You could actually measure this when ball lightning goes by. You can see these clustered nucleate, uh, these kind of iron uh, spheres where ball lightning has gone by, from not from heat, from transmutation. Mm. Well, we're, we're out of time. I yeah. hate to stop you. We set the tone for a bunch of other shows, I think. Sure, sure. Thank you very much. Ben, I think we got time just for uh, what's going on next week. Well, I, uh, I'd, I'd argue it a little bit more, but hey, we'll, 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 we'll hop right into it. So next week, that's uh, March uh, 5th. Jeez, we're already in March. Our, our good friend Reverend Michael Carter of Ancient Aliens will be back to talk about ETs, time travelers, both or neither. And you can get your questions to us at paul at behindtheparanormal.com. Now, we leave you today with a deep thought from that old sweetheart, Mark Twain. Knowledge becomes wisdom only after it has been put to good use. And here in New England today, I give you another quote from him. If you don't like New England weather, wait a minute. He also said, uh, there is no such thing as climate in New England, only weather. Only weather. That's <laughs> right. Well, we know that pretty well. So anyway, I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno. And thank you for joining us on this wild ride of a cosmic journey. And we shall see you next time on Behind the Paranormal. Thank you.
Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.